Welcome to the EggerSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. Now, today's presenters, we are very excited uh, to welcome back Dr. Allie Hartman, um, who is with Proactivity North Carolina. Dr. Hartman is clinically trained as a doctor of physical therapy. She harbors a deep appreciation for the human body and the resilience it holds. Unlike traditional rehabilitation professionals, Allie spends the majority of her time outside of clinic walls, enabling herself, embedding herself, I'm sorry, within working populations to maximize their health and well-being and performance of groups and individuals while leveraging her unique experience in the workplace prevention and health promotion. She has completed advanced certifications in applied prevention and health promotion therapies and in residency at Proactivity. uh, She's also worked uh, in a human achievement company that has specialized in workplace prevention and health uh, promotion within industrial uh, industrialized workforces for the past 20 years. Allie was recently named managing partner of Proactivity Activities North Carolina field office. We also have our very own Tara Haskins, the Total Farmer Health Director with AgriSafe. She has been a registered nurse with 33 years of clinical experience, holds a master's in psychiatric mental health nursing and a doctorate of nursing practice in forensic. For the last 12 years, she has been a nurse educator in psychiatric mental health concepts. Tara has experience in crisis suicide intervention and addiction treatment in both outpatient and inpatient settings. She is a 2018 AgriSafe Nurse Scholar graduate and a National Rural Health Association fellow. She collaborated on a policy paper on disaster preparedness and response in rural communities. Chair continues to advocate as a national at a national level for rural health services and programming. So we welcome today's presenters and the wonderful information that they will be discussing with us today. Well, thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to be able to present on this topic. Um, I have um, I worked for probably about a third of my career in an orthopedic surgery floor and in surgical ICU. And so um, I've had a lot of interactions with people with musculoskeletal issues. I'm going to go ahead and shut off my camera just so we won't have this distraction. And for today's presentation, I'm going to talk about the prevalence of occupational hazards in the farming community. And I'm also going to try to relate those uh, occupational implications for agriculture to the issues of chronic pain and also of acute pain. They're, they're certainly there as well. And then I'm going to spend considerable time talking about strategies and conversations and, and ways to engage people in the agricultural community when we're talking about occupational farmer pain. And then uh, I have a few resources at the end, some CDC guideline slides and American College of Occupational Environmental Medicine slides that could be really helpful for you as a healthcare professional or for an ag professional that's working um, perhaps with um, individuals that this may be, they may be impacted by this. So just to kind of frame the conversation, let's talk about our audience. So this might be really interesting to our healthcare professionals that are on with us today. Um, So as of the USDA 2017 census data, there were 3.4 million farmers working in the United States. Now, farmers range, uh, typically ranchers are included in farmers. So so this industry is wide and it has a huge range. And over 2.7 of those Uh, individuals or principal operators. If you're not familiar with that term, principal operator, it is the person that's responsible for the on-site day-to-day operation of that farm and business. And uh, this person also, though, could be a hired manager or a business manager. And I think it's really interesting to bring home the point that the agricultural work work sector, according to NIOSH, Um, which is uh, our National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, um, uh, reports that about every day, the full breadth of agricultural workers, we have about 100 agricultural um, incidences where someone suffers lost time work injury. So I think that um, this slide really illustrates the significance of injuries in farming communities. So this slide is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 
and uh, these are outlining non-fatal, non-severe injury and illness. So what is that according to the Bureau of Statistics? They define that as like medical treatment that may be something other than just a little bit of first aid that you might do sort of out in the field with a Band-Aid or something, but it would be significant enough that someone could maybe have to have restriction from work or they maybe lose range of motion uh, due to the injury. There may be in uh, considered loss of consciousness in this category, but someone that, you know, the returns, um, and it also may result in somebody needing to be transferred to another job. And it's, it's significant in, in the lost work time category as well. So if you look um, down here at, and I can't, can you see the very bottom of my slide, Nisha? There we go. So with the very, um, this, uh, the ag uh, industry uh, ranks highest in uh, these type of injuries. So it's the number one category in non-severe injury and illness. In the category of non-fatal severe injury and illness, agriculture ranks fourth out of the 12 categories that we have listed here um, for uh, for non-fatal severe injury. And what does that mean? It's usually loss of limbs, such as perhaps an amputation, usually requiring inpatient hospitalization for some type of injury, could incur like the loss of an eye. And so these are severe, significant injuries that over time can prevent someone's um, ability to return to work at all. Um, it oftentimes uh, incurs long recovery times, greater financial losses that impact both the individual that sustains the injury and their families as well. So just for our audience that may not be healthcare providers, I thought maybe a slide to talk about how we talk about pain in healthcare uh, might be um, uh, helpful. So we can categorize when we, when we label pain, we can do it as opposed to the time frame, or maybe the cause or the etiology. So acute pain, that category of acute pain is oftentimes can be directly related to the cause of injury, um, but it also can occur from disease or perhaps inflammation in the body. And I think the big characteristic that is sudden and it usually lasts only three months or less, usually less than three months. In sharp contrast, chronic pain um, is can be gradual or sudden, uh, but the one thing about chronic pain conditions is that it tends to wax and wane over time, and there may be flare-ups, and those can be very distressing, especially if someone's had a, a lengthy period of time where they've not had any discomfort or, or impact on their daily living, and then all of a sudden this thing shows up again. Um, the important thing to know is that chronic pain conditions can last months and oftentimes years at a time, and my interactions with patients experiencing chronic pain the uh, one year or more scenario is the usually the information that I get. So this is this occurs, you know, quite frequently. And the complexity of chronic pain makes it much more difficult to treat. Um, we do have a lot of modalities that can treat chronic pain, but it usually takes someone that's very attentive and can uh, listen to the individual about their experience and, and to help them to decide what are the best choices. Now, when we look at the etiology, two types of pain that come to mind, and if you look at a different resource, you might see this broken down into even smaller categories. But in general, what we see with agricultural populations, nociceptive pain, which is uh, damage to tissue. So an example of this um, might be damage to skin. Um, you get nociceptive pain maybe after a surgical procedure. It could be damage to bone or tissue or joint um, or maybe damage or disease to organs. So, so that usually is the damage to the tissue. It is typically characterized by being sharp, aching, throbbing. There are some other descriptives that typically come along with nociceptive, but this is in general what we typically hear. Now, neuropathic pain is usually is going to be the damage to peripheral nerves or the central nervous system. And when patients experience a lot of peripheral nerve damage, they may describe their pain as burning, shooting, sharp, electric shocks. This tends to be uh, fall into this more chronic sometimes category because um, nerve regeneration can take 
significant amount of time. Now, CNS uh, pain under the neuropathic category, this is sometimes where we may see patients also describe it as burning, but this is where patients sometimes will describe numbness as a component of the pain uh, experience, and unfortunately, more severe changes in motor reflexes and strength. And the other complexity with this is that somebody could present with a presentation where they are experiencing both nociceptive and neuropathic pain. And so this um, kind of um, emphasizes the importance and the uh, benefit of having pain specialists to be able to tease some of these out because this takes getting a really good um, history um, and, and following up with the symptomology and asking really good questions on assessment. So I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of put side by side what we know about chronic pain factors in general population. And let's just kind of look at that in comparison to what we have in agriculture. So in general, according to Mills, Nicholson and Smith in a 2019 article, they looked at a meta-analysis of a large number of articles and they compiled the list, the factors that um, affect chronic pain, maybe risk factors, some things, the things we know about it. And the one thing we know is that it tends to affect older adults. Well, if you look at our agricultural population, the average age of producers is 57.5. Now that average age is slightly different between male versus female. And uh, yes, healthcare professionals, we have a lot of female producers out there. But another interesting um, thing that I think is very important is that the average age of our military or our veteran farmers is on average 10 years older than our average age of producers. So that average age of veteran farmers is about 67. And many times those individuals have been impacted by chronic pain conditions that may have resulted from their military service. So that's a really important uh, thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind. Uh, we do know that men tend to, uh, they're less likely to report and seek treatment. Uh, that's just, we see that in all kinds of medical conditions. And if we look at the uh, population of producers, over 50% of producers are male. And that's been, uh, that's been, those numbers have been like that for generally a while. But an interesting thing is that the numbers of women primary producers is on the rise. And we're seeing a lot more women working in agriculture as being that main business owner. With women in chronic pain factors, what we see is that they tend to report higher pain intensity and disability. Okay, so as we see the growing number of producers that are female, and I'll be interested to see the next USDA report, what that, you know, any, any change in that percentage of female versus male, what would that mean to us? Because women reporting higher pain intensity and disability, it may be that maybe they are at higher risk for, for greater injury due to, you know, um, uh, their ability, you know, their, their ability to sustain heavy work over time. Um, but one thing we do know about women is they, they unlike men, are more likely to seek treatment and uh, much earlier. So, so that, is, that is a positive. So sleep deprivation and chronic pain. This is sort of a, uh, the sleep has uh, plays two roles in chronic pain. Number one, when someone is sleep deprived or is not getting restorative sleep, we know that their chronic pain symptoms are worse. On the flip side of that, someone that is experiencing chronic pain is going to have sleep disturbance, changes in their sleep architecture, difficulty staying asleep. And what do we know about agriculture? They work long hours, they have limited sleep, they have a, an enormous amount of fatigue, and we know according to NIOSH that fatigue is gonna lead to increased injuries, and so this just this just compounds the problem with agriculture. The types of injuries that we see with, uh, associated with chronic pain factors or the areas of the body, neck, back, particularly um, conditions like osteoarthritis that many times require having joint, needing, requiring joint replacements. And in agriculture, guess what? Musculoskeletal uh, injuries are the majority of those that are related. So this slide just sort of emphasizes the number of uh, studies out there that support the types of injuries that we see in agricultural um, populations. And, um, and uh, Dr. Hartman is going to talk to you about some of the reasons that set them up for these musculoskeletal 
um, conditions, uh, which is directly related to a lot of the work and the risk factors of their work. So now I kind of want to shift the conversation to talking about um, how do we start engaging and asking patients about their pain? And, you know, there are a lot of different mnemonics out there. If you're a healthcare professional, you have your own way that you ask about questions about assessing pain, whether you use something like the PQRST or the Olcarts method, that series of questions that get to all the different aspects and characteristics that the person experiences to help us develop a good effective treatment plan. But I think we need to even start more basic than that. And I think we need to begin with an honest rapport, um, uh, particularly people that work in rural communities and agricultural communities really appreciate knowing all of the good and all of the bad and all of the pitfalls of treatment that they may encounter. And I think, number one, they respect someone that is honest with them. And number two, when you live in a rural area, you don't have the resources available to you. And to think about having to maybe go see a, a provider because you're not sure if this thing that is happening to you is something expected or not as a result of your treatment, that can be very distressing when you've got a really tight schedule with your agricultural production. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's, you know, it, it can it can breed a lot of discontent because um, um, I kind of hearken back to what my dad tells me when he gets upset. And he said, if I had just known about this from the get go, then I wouldn't have had to worry about it so much. And I, and I wouldn't have had to worry about trying to get an appointment. So I think honest rapport is a good place to start for people working in agriculture. I mean, their body is their tool. And so that is a critical critical piece to their production. And if they can't use their body, then they can't do the work they need in order to help run their business. So talking to them about function and about how pain affects their function is going to be critical. And I think that that shows that you respect the, um, the importance of their work and the importance of the need for them to want to get back to work. It's just the, the job of the healthcare provider to help them do that in the safest manner possible. The image on the right-hand side of the screen, I love this, and if you're a healthcare provider, you know the 0 to 10 severity scale, which we ask patients ad nauseum when we're working with them in the hospital, and it is a subjective scale, but it does allow providers to be able to figure out, are we going in the right direction, are we meeting their, you know, pain medication needs, um, but I like these sort of descriptions that you see over here to the side because sometimes that number scale doesn't really tell the whole story or sometimes trying to figure out whether my pain is moderate or distressing. So what does that really mean? And so uh, it might be helpful for um, a farmer or a rancher if you'd ask questions such as, well, tell me, are you constantly aware of your pain but can continue most activities? Or are you thinking about your pain most of the time and can do some of your activities? that you need to do. So, so I think maybe thinking of it in terms of a, something other than a number scale um, might be very helpful with the population in agriculture. I have the Wong Banker uh, faces down here at the bottom and I just put that down there. We generally use that in pediatrics. Now, if you're working with somebody that does not speak English, uh, this can be somewhat helpful, but of course, cultural competencies require us to get um, uh, an interpreter in for somebody if they, you know, if if they have difficulty understanding English or if they don't speak English or we don't or we don't speak their language as well. Some other things to sort of consider is we need to talk to um, uh, our farmers and ranchers about what is an acceptable pain level because that helps us decide where our goals are in treatment and are we meeting those goals and that also kind of helps establish the fact that you know we may not be able to completely eradicate your pain but where is something that you still could be able to work and work safely okay so you know being in constant pain is also a safety risk on the farm um, but but I think this kind of helps sort of set that tone and then working to them to maximize function maybe giving some modifications or help them come up with modifications to be able to do their work now, medication education is really critical, and I think that healthcare professionals need to recognize that, unfortunately, in rural areas, 
um, many people don't have a pharmacy. And so that, that very valuable pharmacist uh, resource for medication education is not there. So we need to make sure that we answer all their questions and understand that medications such as Vicodin or Lortab, which is a combination of hydrocodone and acetaminophen, that acetaminophen, uh, they don't need to take additional acetaminophen over the counter, or even that seemingly benign cold medication that may also uh, include some of those things. And in addition to that, we need to talk to them about managing the side effects of those medications and how they can do that from home um, safely. Active recovery, Dr. Hartman's going to talk about this, and I think most farmers and ranchers and people in agriculture, they would probably embrace this, you know, uh, discouraging uh, extended bed, bed rest and, and trying to do what you can early on. Uh, people in agriculture are sort of like a pull yourself up by the bootstraps, let me see what I can do, but we also need to provide them some limitations of what that active recovery actually means. And then I think maybe emphasizing safety at work. And we're gonna talk about the use of opioids and much more in this uh, whole series. We hope you come back. We're gonna talk in more specifics, but um, you know, using opioids in the typical work that we see in agriculture is just not a safe strategy. And we need to come up with some alternatives and there may be alternatives of medications that could be safer, or maybe other ranges of treatments that, um, such as electrical stem or physical therapy or, you know, stretching and, and following up with those exercises that they're given to do at home. And then I think another good question for this population is ask them of what their resource limitations are where they live. Um, so, and they may not have high-speed broadband access, and so being able to get information over the internet when they need it may be really challenging as well. And then, of course, reviewing safe opioid treatment is going to be critical, especially in terms of their work. So this uh, slide is that um, American College of Occupational Environmental Medicine. And what this slide is kind of sharing with you is that they looked at multiple studies. They looked over 20,000 abstracts. And what this, these are just some of the findings that, that kind of impact the discussion today. Um, in all of these population-based studies, there was elevated risk of crash with the use of opioids and much more increased risk in the acute opioid use, zero to four weeks. So that tells you that acute opioid use has no business when people are working in using um, large equipment, driving, and that's a large that's a large portion of agricultural work. So we need to be able to figure out, you know, how they can make modifications on this. And then, um, you know, both weak and strong opioids have been associated with increased risk of motor vehicle crashes. So um, important to note that these uh, motor vehicle crash risk estimates ranged anywhere from 29% more to 800% more. So the risk is there, and that's why we need to talk very frankly with agricultural people working in agriculture and opioid use. So these just sort of, it's a little graphic that emphasizes maybe some of the things I've already talked about. We know that the risk factors for opioid use in terms, especially in terms of injury and chronic pain, the nature of the work is a risk factor. We have a lot of injuries. Um, injury, occupational injuries are high. And then the advanced age that we see in agricultural primary uh, producers um, is right in that range. Um, in addition to the stigma that we see in rural agricultural communities, not only surrounding opioid dependence, but also surrounding opioid use. And so you may get people that are resistant or scared to use pain medication, even as uh, prescribed in a safe manner, because maybe there may be some stigma with that, or maybe they've known someone that struggled with opioid use. And then also, as far as risk factors in rural opioid use in general, the geographic isolation uh, yields very limited resources. And we do know that there historically has been an increased availability of prescription opioids. This has been all over the news. This is no news, uh, new news to you. Um, and um, so if we encounter someone we need to kind of consider this geographic isolation, screen for opioid use, both safe and unsafe, and talk to them also if there is a dependency there 
about the stigma to receive treatment. So Farmtown Strong did a survey and they found a few um, uh, basic facts. There's just a few here. There was multiple points they looked at in this data. And so they found that 74% of farmers and farm workers have been directly impacted by the opioid epidemic. And that's why this series is so important because we can't forget this population, especially when they're at high risk for injury and also high risk for chronic pain. Three and four farmers say it's easy to access large amounts of opioids, even without a prescription. And this is in sharp contrast to the fact that only one in three rural adults say it would be easy to access addiction treatment. And so, you know, it's access to opioids is is out there and it's large access, but if you unfortunately experience a dependency, even if you were trying to follow treatment plans and you need addiction treatment or dependency treatment, there's much less access. Uh, working in inpatient, both inpatient and outpatient, I worked with a lot of patients that had opioid addiction and the majority, I would probably say at least 80 to 85% of people that came in seeking treatment, their dependency started while they were trying to follow treatment regimes for a chronic pain treated condition. Now we have new guidelines that try to, you know, prevent some of those things from happening. But my point is this, no one, I, I, I never had a patient come to me and say, oh, I just started using these just to have a good time or party. No, they were, they were using and they became medically dependent on opioids when they were trying to do the right thing. And I think this is part of some of the issues that we need to address to sort of dissuade some of that stigma. The other thing we get really concerned about with opioid dependence is overdose, because opioids, by sheer case of how they work, cause respiratory depression. And as people start taking more and more over time, because they've developed tolerance and they don't get the same effect, and they're trying to look for pain relief, you know, the, 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 um, those respiratory depression effects in some different formulations don't have a ceiling effect. In other words, they continue to take more and they're gonna get more side effects and more respiratory depression and eventually could overdose. This is a huge epidemic in our country and there's been a lot of work in this area, but it continues to be something that we need to address. And one of our sessions in this series is gonna talk about naloxone use. And so please join us for that because it's very important. Currently right now in the United States, 2.5 million people suffer from prescription opioid addiction and roughly a large number of those um, were prescribed um, uh, opioids for chronic pain use. In fact, 80% who are currently addicted to opioids are estimated to have started their addiction. So interesting, I'm reading here a statistic from the National Rural Health Association, and that's exactly what I saw in clinical practice. So here is the CDC guideline. This is a great tool for the you that you can kind of use. And hey, why not in that conversation say, hey, according to the CDC guideline, this is what we know. And this first is, slide is about initiation. So don't forget everything you need to do to evaluate for the risk factors. Um, talk to them about their realistic goals, as we said. Talk of things in both pain level and in functional level so that we can see you know, where our treatment goals need to go. And be very mindful that somebody could uh, have other risk factors for opioid use, such as maybe they um, are heavy users of alcohol or they have an opioid addiction history and that perhaps restarting opioids or mismanagement of that could probably uh, jeopardize their recovery. So I think it's very important to have these conversations from the get-go. And then in practice, of course, you know, our mantra, we, we, we know that immediate release opioids have a, hit the opioid receptor a little bit less harder than those uh, uh, immediate release opioids, excuse me, hit that receptor pretty hard uh, compared to sustained release or extended release. So that tends to be a little bit, have a little fewer risk factors associated with them. The mantra start low and go slow still applies here, especially, especially when you're working with older populations. But, but uh, in general, we want to use the lowest effective dose. Look at other um, uh, treatment uh, possibilities such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatories because right now what uh, opioids are indicated for is for moderate to severe pain management. And NSAIDs have been shown to be very effective and could possibly be adjunctive therapy. 
and then of course following up with um, with evaluation pretty pretty quickly we want to follow up in a week uh, no later than four weeks and I think more frequent follow-up is really the best course of action so this is the American College of Occupational Environmental Medicine Practice Guidelines. This really just echoes a lot of what the CDC says. This has more of an occupational um, medicine bent to it. And um, uh, they do suggest that opioids can be adjunctive for post-operative pain, but only up to about four weeks. And that's generally what we use in general population. And um, the routine use of opioids for acute pain management is really not necessarily recommended, so we want to look at other things and only resort to opioids if it's um, the only effective treatment option. So I want to talk to you about reducing some barriers uh, because I think these are some of the things I've heard patients say to me, and you know I can hear people in rural America worried about these things too. Some people won't even take their pain medication because they fear they're going to be they fearful they're going to become addicted, okay? And I think we need to, to kind of bring home that message that dependence is uncommon if patients take an opioids as directed. And then the other importance of this uh, addressing this is that they need to understand that their communication with you as a provider is going to be critical. And so we can mitigate some of these problems. Some patients are worried that they're going to start having tolerance and then the medication's not going to work anymore. And sometimes people get really embarrassed by recognizing that they're starting to not work anymore. Some of this is stigma related. And we need to kind of, you know, from the get-go, talk about tolerance as a, it's a normal physiologic response to chronic opioid therapy. That's why we try to avoid chronic opioid therapy. And when they experience that, when that medication is not starting to work as effectively anymore, rather than borrow someone else's medications or resort to other measures, they need to contact the, the healthcare provider so we can help them with some other strategies. Some patients get really worried about side effects and I think the, the take-home message here is education, strategies, and resources, particularly for people living in rural communities. Their resources are limited, and so if they know how to address those side effects when they happen and which ones are the ones to call about and which ones are expected, you know, then uh, they can have a lot less anxiety and a lot more effective um, engagement in their treatment. And the desire to be stoic, and I kind of this is this is our agricultural uh, producers, people, farm workers, um, and I think healthcare providers need to recognize that, and and even and say this to to someone that maybe tends to be holding back that while being tough and being the tough guy or the tough girl um, is very valuable in their business. These people get up early in the morning, they work late at night, they're out in the snow, they do, they do the work until the job is done. That is a valuable characteristic in order to be a, a very successful agricultural uh, producer. But when dealing with pain, if they don't report pain or report treatment failures as soon as they occur, that could result in their undertreatment of pain. It could also result in more pain down the road and um, it could also result in loss of function. Some patients get worried that when pain shows back up, that means their disease is getting worse. And while that's certainly um, a valid concern, they need to know that an increased pain could be tolerance. And so that may be one of the characteristics we want them to kind of circle back around or new pain could be from a new source. And so someone needs to evaluate them to find out, is this something else and a different problem that's showing up? And then, of course, medication ineffectiveness. When people experience a lot of pain, particularly chronic pain, you know, the anxiety of not feeling good or not getting any relief is sometimes even as great as the distress of having the pain. And so I think we need to really have conversations with our patients that there are a lot of options out there, not only in different drug categories, but other adjunct treatments that can allow them some more independence, more function and ability to get the job done. And so transforming conversation, just in summary, I wanna just encourage you, try to maybe use some more descriptive language, such as those statements or those sentences that I shared on the previous slide. Ask that 
uh, farmer, you know, where do, when does your pain affect you the most? Ask about cycles of pain, morning, afternoon, noon, in bed. When is it, when is it the worst? Focus on function and, the, and how it affects their work so much more than the feeling because a farmer can relate to that. Do great history taking. If you do a detailed history of pain, which includes previous treatments, success and failures, uh, this is going to make uh, the, the collaborative work you do with the patient much more effective. And certainly establish with that patient what is acceptable for them, which is an individual experience. And this just breeds very good patient partnerships. And farmers appreciate that because they're used to working with others you know, on their farms and in their rural communities. And so they appreciate a partnership. Um, and then always emphasize the goal of returning safely to work. And so now I'm going to pass this off to my colleague, Dr. Hartman. Thank you so much, Tara. That was awesome. I am going to share my screen. If someone can just verify in one second that you are able. Oh, second try is a charm that you're able to see it. You're good to go, Dr. Hartman. Excellent. Okay, well, uh, that was great information. Uh, thank you very much, Tara. So we are going to dive into the second half here. Some of this, um, you know, it has already been shared in other ways, but uh, just kind of to re-emphasize this musculoskeletal diseases and musculoskeletal related pain in farmers. Lifetime prevalence reported at 90.6%, um, one year prevalence of 92%. So just so we can kind of see multiple statistics of showing how prevalent this problem is. Um, and it has a multimodal negative impact, right? When we talk about pain, it's not just the physical burden and uh, impacting work and life responsibilities, but the financial burden, the quality of life burden, um, and the sequela of health problems that can come from uh, avoiding movement or modifying movement because of a pain-related condition. If we want to look in more detail of, okay, we get it, musculoskeletal conditions are a big problem, but like which ones specifically seem to um, target this population or are most common in this population? Low back pain, um, not necessarily unique to the farming population. Number one cause of disability worldwide, um, tied with depression, uh, depending on what uh, source you look at. Um, hip osteoarthritis in some studies shown to be 10 times higher in the farming population than control cases. Uh, and DOA is another one that shows up in the literature. Neck pain, upper extremity conditions impacting the shoulder, elbow, wrist, and hand. Um, hand arm vibration syndrome, and uh, even some more systemic musculoskeletal conditions. So kind of influencing multiple different body parts um, at once like uh, rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia. So before we can talk in more detail about the nitty gritty of how do we talk to farmers about their pain, how do we talk to them um, in terms of our language for their options and then know how to guide them towards good evidence-based care, we have to understand um, all the risk factors that contribute to a, a pain experience in this particular population. So musculoskeletal conditions, I think, have gotten a bad rap of all the risk factors being related to biomechanics and ergonomics, lifting mechanics and uh, poor posture. Um, and while those are certainly important components of the risk factors, and as you can see, one of the three main buckets um, that's identified, I think we do ourselves a disservice to ignore that that's just one of the contributing risk factor buckets, right? We also have things like social determinants of health, a person's uh, both physical and social environment, their access to resources, um, their access to things like nutritious foods and opportunities for leisure time physical activity outside of the physical activity that they're getting for their job. Um, things like their uh, past experiences, their cultural beliefs, um, the beliefs of the people that they spend their mo the most of their time around. Um, all of those things have a major influence over our risk for musculoskeletal conditions, as well as occupational hazards, um, which, which we've talked about up to this point. And then on the other side, we've got our lifestyle, behavioral, and psychosocial factors, right, which we're going to get into here in a little bit. But these three buckets, um, if we kind of really boil it down, most of the risk factors that contribute contribute to musculoskeletal conditions in this population and beyond can sort of fall into one of these three buckets. So we need to be sure that we are, um, you know, speaking to each of these three buckets when we are talking to farmers about their pain.
and we're going to get into some examples of how to do that here in a minute. So to kind of look one by one, the biomechanic and ergonomic factors. Um, these are things that we're all probably pretty acutely aware of, right? Extreme or sustained working postures, uh, overly repetitive motions and tasks, how long an exposure is to one of those two things, uh, what we call in the more sports literature, acute to chronic workload ratio, but this certainly impacts the farming population in a huge way, right? Going from uh, one particular workload for a period and then a rapid fluctuation in that in either an increased or decreased direction. So uh, for example, like during a harvest period where um, all of a sudden workload may increase significantly all the while sleep decreasing, right? And that leaves us in a major risk category um, for a pain episode. Things like lifting and carrying heavy loads, quite obvious, and even things in whole body vibration and hand transmitted vibration, although there's some debate in the literature there um, of that being a reliable risk factor. But there are other factors, right? So we're starting to see, uh, it's really exciting to start to see some of this stuff come through mainstream literature and even find its way into kind of mainstream practice, um, which hasn't always been the case. So if we look at this great article, a systematic review of risk factors for musculoskeletal disorders among farm owners and farm workers, we see this statement. They say spinal MSD risk factors include exposure to working in tree crops, okay, ergo, makes sense, vibration, okay, ergonomic risk factor, postural load, uh, ergonomic risk factor, but wait, being an owner-operator, okay, that's not really an ergonomic lift fa uh, risk factor, that's more along the lines of stress, right, or, or pressures to produce more, um, age could be sort of in the, the ergo category, education, beyond high school, that's certainly not an ergonomic risk factor, suffering from asthma or depression, those are not ergonomic risk factors, having less than eight hours of nightly sleep, bad quality sleep, and geographic location. So all of a sudden, we're starting to see a picture in a systematic review, um, um, some of the highest level of evidence that we can get, that there's more to the picture than just the ergonomic risk factors this population is facing. We see things like this, uh, um, the final statement of this, this article saying the findings of the systematic review are consistent with findings that back pain is associated with a number of different factors, which are not exclusively linked to work tasks performed, but act in combination with personal and psychosocial factors. That is so refreshing for me to hear as a physical therapist um, because it's alignment at last, right? We've moved as a, uh, as a medical community in terms of what the research tells us and what we know about pain. We've moved from this old view of pain, which is that it was only related to mechanical tissue injury, right? That pain equaled tissue injury. And thus, if we had pain, it must mean that some uh, tissue is injured, and so we need to treat um, both the pain and the tissue injury. Um, and we now have evolved to have this biopsychosocial understanding of pain, that pain and tissue injury uh, are two, those often related, um, very separate uh, components of a pain experience, that there's many factors that influence an individual's pain experience that are totally uh, independent of level of tissue injury, prior experiences, attention, expectation, mood, neurochemical, and structural changes. So it, it's exciting to see that the research is supporting alignment at last with our um, most up-to-date understanding and model of pain. And what about the lifestyle factors that we talked about and the psychosocial component? Well, let's look at some of the literature on stress and pain, right? And we now uh, have, have very good evidence that when we take the exact same person and put them under a stress-induced situation and then uh, have them in a non-stressful clinical situation, that they're more sensitive to painful stimuli when they're in the stressful situation. So we see this relationship between stress and our pain experience. We see it with sleep, right? Tara uh, mentioned this. We have there's a bidirectional between sleep and pain. Um, the insufficient or lack of quality sleep is an independent predictor of future pain episodes or worsening pain episodes. Things like nutrition and pain, the types of foods we eat influencing our body's total inflammatory load. Um, so we're now seeing some really cool stuff 
regarding knee osteoarthritis and fiber consumption. When we increase fiber consumption, we see a symptomatic knee OA going down. We see uh, levels of inflammation, even at the joint space itself, decreasing. So starting to expand our view of what's related to pain. This is one of my favorite visuals. I have it on my computer to show all the time to people um, relating our, our atherosclerosis, what we've long thought of as just, you know, related to our heart and artery health um, and our risk for things like heart disease maybe having a link to our risks for things like chronic low back pain, right? Because if a structure or a group of structures can't get blood flow to them, it's feasible to think that there would be crushing pain associated with that, right? And, and uh, resultant tissue injury. Tissues need blood flow to thrive. Um, they need oxygen to thrive. So, so just starting to expand our own view of what's contributing to pain, I think can be incredibly liberating for uh, myself as a, as a healthcare provider, but also people with a population that, that has certainly been plagued by pain conditions. Even things like our interpersonal, our environmental um, factors, uh, things like our, our social connectedness, our sense of belonging, our sense of social isolation. We now, uh, when we take people and experimentally isolate them and, and image what's happening in their brain, the same parts of their brain light up when they are being experimentally excluded and they feel like they are being isolated as the same parts of the brain that light up when we experience physical pain. And then finally, beliefs and expectations, right? This one, a gut check um, for those of us, the, the majority of us on this webinar about our beliefs on pain and how our beliefs have a significant impact um, on the beliefs of our patients and on the, uh, ultimately on their outcomes. Right. With, if we take the example of fear avoidance, um, and this is a systematic review that looked at the role of fear avoidance believed as a prognostic factor for people with low back pain, number one cause of pain and disability worldwide. Um, their conclusions were, were uh, definitely a sobering one. Evidence suggests that fear avoidance beliefs are prognostic for poor outcomes for subacute low back pain, and thus early treatment, including interventions to reduce fear avoidance beliefs, may avoid delayed recovery and chronicity, right? That when we make people afraid of their pain, that we're actually writing them a death sentence, right? That we, are, that we by making them afraid of their pain or contributing to fear avoidance beliefs, um, that, that we are contributing to the likelihood of a negative outcome down the road. So all that is a lot in about five minutes, but, um, but let's regroup and refocus. So we understand that pain in farmers is a complex phenomenon. There's multiple contributing factors, uh, including all those factors listed on the left. But where I want to shift the conversation now is to our role, right? Whether we're a healthcare provider, whether we um, are a farmer that, that has influence over other people in our social circles, or whether we're someone that interfaces with this population on a regular basis and has the ability to point them in the right direction. Um, I believe this is our role almost universally. We need to guide the understanding of the complex nature of pain, contributing mechanical and non-mechanical factors. We need to address fear and maladaptive beliefs and provide education and and resources regarding the potential factors that are involved, and most importantly, spread the good news of the many ways we can positively influence pain, including a plethora of conservative measures. So it all starts with a conversation, right? We have to get comfortable with how are we going to talk about pain um, in both clinical and non-clinical settings. So the conversations with farmers regarding their pain is simply our starting point, right? Um, we, we need to talk to farmers about options, strategies, solutions, and recommendations, and then have the resources available to equip that individual with what they need when they need it, whether that's in-house, um, encourage independent solutions, or refer out to an appropriate provider when necessary. Step one is talking to farmers about their pain, right? What do we ask? Tara has covered a lot of this already, so I'm just going to kind of, uh, you will have these slides and can use this as reference, but the important thing is to really gain a complete understanding of symptom behavior. So we can really dial into what's going on here. Like, can we get to the root of the issue versus just treat the symptoms of the problem? Um, so understanding exactly where it's located, the nature of the symptoms, how long has it been going on for? Um, is the pain level that they're experiencing tolerable, like an eight out of 10 to us might be intolerable, but to uh, someone else, they may say, oh yeah, it's really not that bad. Um, 
also we need to understand where what is their pain levels but less important than the number is is it tolerable on a day-to-day -day basis and how does it vary aggravating and even easing factors what types of things make your symptoms worse versus what types of things make them better that can tell us a lot about what structures are involved um, right and finally asking about other related regions so uh, for as an example if someone has uh, left shoulder and elbow pain have we looked at the possibility that it could be coming from their neck? Um, or, or if they have one-sided shoulder pain and then their other shoulder and, and their hand is hurting, um, again, could we have we screened out the possibility that it could be coming from their neck? So important that we realize that gaining a complete understanding of symptoms does two things. One, it helps uh, if we're a healthcare professional, it helps us to understand what's going on. Number two is it develops amazing rapport. Many times people haven't had someone ask this level of detail about their symptoms and simply the act of asking about their symptoms in this level of detail validates their experience um, and makes them feel like you really care about getting them solutions, um, which I can't understate how important it is um, for empowering these populations to uh, overcome their pain. More specifics about what we asked, we want to understand about the demands of their job, how these demands influence their symptoms, and how these symptoms are influencing their ability to complete these demands. So understanding their day-to-day, -day, what types of activities that you have to do for work or positions or postures aggravate your symptoms? How long can you do that activity before it gets how bad? Um, and when you do ease your symptoms, uh, how long do you have to do those easing activities before it can come back down to baseline? This gives us an understand a baseline of how we're going to measure progress, right? Because sometimes it's hard to tell when you still have pain or you've had pain for so long if you're getting better. So sometimes we just need to be able to con confirm that a person in fact is making progress even if it's slow or steady. So asking those types of questions can allow us to track over time of uh, more clearly is this person making progress. Even if you still have symptoms, if you can do the activity for longer before it gets to a lower level or intensity of pain, that's progress and we're on the right track. And what kinds of things are your symptoms limiting your ability to do on a day-to-day -day basis, both at work and just in your regular life? Finally, uh, we need to ask about their beliefs, right? What do you think is going on? How can I best help you? What do you believe is going to help you most? Those are the three most important questions we could ask, right? As a healthcare professional or otherwise. Um, oftentimes people have an intuitive understanding of what they need. Um, and so asking them, and, and this can also give us powerful information about what type of uh, psychosocial factors may be at play. And ask about lifestyle behaviors that we talked about we know are linked to pain, right? Do we have a movement practice outside of our occupational responsibilities? Um, what are the sleep habits like? What are nutrition habits like? Stress management and coping, it's social connectedness and isolation. What are we listening for when we talk, when we ask these questions? First and foremost, we're using empathic listening, right? We are trying to um, let that person tell their story and be heard. We're listening for red flag signs and symptoms, things that would suggest it's not actually musculoskeletal in nature, like unrelenting or consistent no matter whether I change my posture or position. Clues into maladaptive beliefs, experiences, and ex expectation. Things like fear avoidance, showing that they're afraid of movement because of their pain. Opportunities for modification of physical contextual factors um, to reduce their symptom irritability. So can we uh, look for ways to modify some of those aggravating activities to uh, allow the body to do what it needs to do to get better? Opportunities for modification in lifestyle behaviors to, to impact their overall system irritability, which we're gonna talk about shortly. So once we've had the conversation about their uh, kind of understanding their pain, what do we say about their pain? Well, first and foremost, we want to reduce fear and maladaptive beliefs. I'm repetitive, right? It's very, very important. We want to validate their experience of pain. Not that we have to validate every little um, belief that they have, but validating their overall experience and just that I believe you. Um, there's so much stigma that's around pain and particularly in this population that that is a really, really important component. 
We also want to spread the great news that although pain is complex and has so many factors and that could seem overwhelming, that it's actually really great news because it gives us so many levers to pull in our ability to influence their symptoms. So that's where I like to show you guys my whiteboard example. This is kind of in real time, one of the key examples I use to explain pain uh, real time in the clinic. So I have a whiteboard and I draw this graph to start um, and the, I explain that the red dashed line is sort of like our threshold when, um, when the activity of our nervous system, which is the wiggly line at the bottom, gets beyond that threshold, we experience pain. And so the way our nervous system works is it kind of bee buzzes along down at baseline. It's taking in information at our tissue level and outside in our environment. It's kind of surveying what's going on uh, and it's staying relatively close to baseline. Thing happens, right? We roll our ankle out in the field and all of a sudden that nervous system activity goes through the roof. It passes through um, our threshold and we experience pain. And the way that it should work um, is that, you know, we kind of hang out over threshold for a while, but over time our tissues calm down um, and then uh, slowly we'll come down below threshold and we'll stop experiencing that pain and we'll come back down to baseline and be buzz right along. The problem is that it that we don't always <laughs> it doesn't always live like this, right? Um, sometimes our activity is much closer to that threshold, and we'll talk about why in a second. And so the very same thing that happens or thing that goes wrong, we twist the ankle or we lift that bag of feed wrong, and uh, all of a sudden we skyrocket way further we did than we did in the prior example. We stay above threshold way longer, and when we return to baseline, we are just below it with very little opportunity for anything to go wrong before we go right back over threshold again. So my conversation goes, Tell me, in your experience, have we been focusing on that red X pretty much exclusively? And a lot of times people say, yeah, like we've really focused on the tissue itself or we've focused on like the actual injury or trying to diagnose exactly which structure in my body um, is causing this pain. And, uh, and I'll say like, has that worked? Um, and a lot of times people will say no. And I say, okay, let me just throw something out there. If we know that there's lots of things that can influence pain um, and that can influence how close we live to that threshold level, would you be open to using them? And I haven't had anyone say no yet. Um, it's like totally against me trying to help them get out of their pain. But I say, what if we could create more buffer room? Instead of just focusing on the tissue, what if we could create more room for life to go wrong before you're over that threshold? with things like what we've talked about already, right? Uh, fuel, the types of foods that we eat, talking about our sleep structure, uh, maladaptive behaviors like smoking and alcohol consumption, workload management, overall general health, lack of physical activity outside of our work physical activity, um, or a movement practice, if you will, that, that moves our body in variable ways, our beliefs, our experiences, our stress level. Um, if we can leverage all those things to pull you further away from threshold while we're still trying to figure out what's going on with the tissue, I promise we can get you to a better place um, a lot more effectively. And so that's an example that I empower you with as you move forward. Um, moving on, we're, I'm, I'll make it quick for these last few slides here. Step two is talking about options, strategies, solutions, and recommendations. Again, when we're talking about solutions to pain, we want to continue to reduce fear. We want to present evidence-based guidance on what to do next, set expectations, right? So for example, um, we've evolved from the RICE model to the police model, right? Rest is no longer the number one kind of recommendation for most musculoskeletal related pain conditions, especially acute pain. Um, we want to focus on uh, the police method, which is over here on the right, protected, protection, optimal loading, ice compression, and elevation. So staying up to date on what is the best evidence-based guidance for uh, particular pain-related conditions. We want to know when to refer out and to whom. Um, what is conservative care? physical therapy, occupational therapy, chiropractics, acupuncture, massage therapists, exercise specialists, all of those would be considered conservative care versus do we need to refer out for a more urgent need? 
we want to give honest evaluation of what current best evidence says about potential treatment strategies, right? Particularly ones that are appropriate for their given condition. Um, so we want to be honest about whether we think, uh, you know, we want to have honest conversations around opioids, um, how they're not really long-term effective for pain-related conditions and things like opioid-related hyperalgesia that actually sensitizes our nervous system to pain conditions. Having conversations around how MRI and advanced in indicating and uh, advanced imaging when it is not indicated, right? For example, um, in acute onset low back pain uh, that does not have um, neurological or, or uh, any sort of red flag neurological findings, it is specifically stated um, that it is not recommended for acute onset low back pain without red flag signs or symptoms. Choosing wisely is a great resource for that. It'll tell you the evidence-based guidelines from the top associations related to different procedures. Surgical interventions for various musculoskeletal conditions, being honest about the outcomes of those and efficacy uh, or lack of for conservative care measures for different pain conditions. We wanna empower people and we want to avoid perpetuating the stigma. Um, step three is to provide resources, right? Have what they need when they need it. Sometimes that's in-house. Remember to uh, take the whole person approach. We have a resource list that you all will receive um, that has some good overall resources that you can have on hand to give out to people across that whole person approach. Know when to refer out for musculoskeletal related pain that don't have red flags, right? Conservative care professionals are your top choice um, when red flags are lacking, and we'll talk about that in two slides. And encourage independence when appropriate. Have procedures in place for follow-up. So using screening tools like the Start Back screening tool, which is included in the handout, um, can be helpful to, uh, to determine, does this person even need intervention? Or are they going to be okay um, on their own with just some follow-up? So this is a slide for your reference of, I keep mentioning red flags and I wanted you to have something to go back to in case that's, uh, you know, I know we have a lot of medical providers on here, but if you're not a medical provider and that's something that um, you're like, what does that exactly mean? These are some examples of red flags um, and, and things that would need to be uh, referred to more urgent, um, for more urgent exploration. But lacking red flags, a lot of times um, conservative care is a great option. So the trouble comes in what to look for when referring to conservative care. That's things like physical therapy, occupational therapy, massage therapists, exercise specialists, um, and the likes. What you should look for if you're going to refer out is somewhat, uh, in a practice or an individual that offers one-on-one -on -one appointments for at least 30 to 45 minutes. Um, when, when, it, when we get down to having uh, two or three or four patients kind of scheduled all at the same time, it becomes very difficult to have the complex conversations needed around pain. They should be receiving individual attention from an actual conservative care professional each visit. Um, and they should have an individualized and customized can of player. Be wary of the two times per week for eight weeks um, or every other week for life kind of plans of care um, because those aren't realistic for our farming population, right? Can they really go to physical therapy two times a week for eight weeks, especially if they're 30 or 45 or 50 minutes or more um, from the location? It's just not realistic and that's not a custom customized and individualized plan of care. A com there should be a combination of hands-on, more passive and active care strategies with emphasis on moving more and more towards active strategies throughout the plan of care. Um, and the, a good conservative care provider should be open-minded to alternative methods of service delivery to meet the needs of the population. Things like increased independence, um, decreasing the length of plan of care, telephone check-ins versus having to come in um, every single week, telehealth options that have become now uh, a lot more accessible um, through the pandemic. So uh, just someone that's flexible and understanding of the population. So what does this mean for us, right? For our healthcare providers out there, it means that we need to leave here and examine our beliefs and conversations around pain and propose solutions. Um, start with our examining where we stand on pain and then uh, just that 
uh, that self-exploration can go a long way. We need to build our network of resources to get people what they need when they need it. For the partners and supporters, we need to examine the pathways surrounding the pain experience for the farmers that we interact with. Where do they go? Who do they see? What are the beliefs and outcomes of that particular provider that they're seeing? What are the barriers to accessing what they need? And how can we build structures and systems to overcome these barriers? Can you build relationships with creative care provider providers and get their pe get people there as quickly and early in their pain experience as possible? Because the earlier that we can uh, intervene in a conservative way, um, it just makes a night and day difference in the outcomes. So in bringing it all together and closing it out, we understand that farmers are at an increased risk for musculoskeletal related pain conditions. We understand that current approaches to pain management um, have not been successful in this population at scale and new approaches are needed. Starting by, under, by just improving our explanations and conversations around pain can be of huge benefit alone. And we combine improving our language around pain with having the resources available to help individuals navigate their pain experience, we can make a huge impact on the person's health and life trajectory. So future topics uh, on this opioid prevention series can be found at agrisafe.org. And that information will be shared out at agrisafe.org. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the AgriSafe Network podcast, where our mission is protecting the people who feed the world. You can learn more about the AgriSafe Network at agrisafe.org, and be sure to check out the Learning Lab and all of the excellent resources available on the site. You can also find us on Facebook or contact us anytime at info at agrisafe.org.